but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. It feels to me that it's been five weeks since our last episode, but it's really only been nine or ten days. True. Uh, the season is coming to a rapid conclusion, though. So I feel like if we rest a little too long, we're going to miss it. There's a lot to do to bring this plane into the hangar mm-hmm. for the season, and I don't feel ready or prepared i feel like it's coming at me like a, a freight train and we have to get on top of that okay a lot of transportation metaphors there tennis is back in china or at least wta tennis is back in china well both well both tours are, but one of them was a bigger surprise than the other the wta announced earlier this year that they were going to be going back despite there never being a quote full and transparent investigation of peng Shui's accusations, which uh, for a long time was a requirement of the WTA per Steve Simon. With this return to China, Simon is quoted as saying, we have concluded we will never fully secure those goals, and it will be our players and tournaments who ultimately will be paying an extraordinary price for their sacrifices. He added that the WTA has been in contact with people close to Peng, and that, quote, They're assured she's living safely with her family in Beijing. Mm -hmm. Earlier when this was announced, The Guardian said that the WTA support for Peng, quote, crumbled to dust. John Wertheim said it was, quote, nothing short of a capitulation. And it's hard when when you set a standard that was very moralistic in language to then say, well, we actually didn't get any of what we demanded, not just wanted, demanded publicly, from the government of China. However, we got to go back. Alizé Cornet, one of the first players to use the hashtag Where's Peng Shui back in 2021, she said this year that she would not be returning to China, that she couldn't with everything that hasn't happened on that front. I think the point about the players paying an extraordinary price is probably true and also disappointing to me because the players are also paying a price for, for what? Poor planning on the WTA's part, not having a location for their finals worked out until less than two minutes before the event. Two minutes, two months. <laughs> it feels like minutes. Well, they have two minutes to build a stadium. We'll get uh, to that. Right. But I think that some of that failure has to be has to be taken on by the WTA as just a failure to plan your schedule. So yes, the players would have suffered. Would they have suffered only for not going back to China, or in part because the WTA hasn't been a good business leader in the past few years. The WTA and Steve Simon wears this failure at this point, right? And deservedly so. At the same time, the ATP is doing business in China. The ATP didn't really show much support alongside the WTA when this was going down. And they get what, like... 2% of the blowback that the WTA does throughout this whole entire thing. Yeah. They just get to stay quiet, do the business as they want to, as they always have, and everything's hunky-dory. 
Yes. Uh, hashtag Tennis United, remember. They got very little blowback for staging the next-gen finals in Saudi Arabia this year as well. It's the same story over and over. It goes like the WTA is a representative of female athletes around the world, therefore we have to hold them to a high standard. And I guess men's organizations should be held to no standard? Well, that's so the men message. should never have to stand beside women, right? That's the message. Now, I don't know if I'm off base with this, but I noticed a lot of media from the WTA celebrating the career of Lena. It was, what, the 10th anniversary since her retirement or the last time she played in Beijing? Something to that effect. And I felt like it wasn't just one mention. It was somewhat of a Lena blitz. And I couldn't help but wonder if this was designed to create a shine on something positive for the WTA to kind of gloss over all this other gnarly stuff. I don't know if that's a sinister way of looking at it. Well, uh, I think you can be, you can hold a few different ideas at the same time. One of them at least is Lena's career certainly merits and deserves celebration, especially at this milestone of her retirement, which I cannot believe it's been that long, which means she was never a pro tennis player during our podcast, no. which is super hard to believe. Yeah, so the 10-year anniversaries of the last time she played Beijing and then she retired in the fall of 2014, which is a few months before mm-hmm. we started the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is also worthwhile looking at the genesis of why we have so many Chinese players doing well now, right? And that of has course, to yeah. be linked to Lina. So there's that. Uh, it just It was just something that came to mind. I mean, well, it's not like the WTA is supposed to be out here writing articles saying, yeah, we suck, we fail at <laughs> we this, we drop the ball, right. we're assholes, but here's a story. Because there was never any realistic expectation that the Chinese government or Tennis Federation would have conducted a full and transparent investigation on the former vice premier of China. That wasn't going to happen. However, the federa- or the league said that this is our... Our condition for coming back and and they had to backtrack obviously regardless a former prominent women's tennis player regardless of her prominence that doesn't matter a, a woman tennis player accused a high-ranking government official of raping her and the wta has a responsibility there right that's why we're still talking about this the charges were horrendous that's why we're still talking about it after two years it's just uh disappointing that this is where we are As for the tennis that was played in China, has been played in China, continues to be played in China, Iga Sviantek headlines the results, winning in Beijing, beating Coco Gauff easily in the semifinals before taking out Ludmila Samsonova in the final in similar straight sets. There's been so much scrutiny over Iga's mental game over the past few months. You know, not having defended her U.S. Open title and having some, I guess, surprising wins. Like, the a big surprising win was losing to Coco at all. Having some big surprising wins? <laughs> or losing to Coco. Losses. <laughs> like, what, what, what kind of mental gymnastics is right, going on right. here? And in a year that it wasn't as good as her 2022, of course, but it's still quite a good year for anybody. There's been an obsession about, like, oh, she has no plan B. What is she doing? She's checking out of matches. She might just be tired. 
right? It was uh, like a lot of discourse. She's won five titles this year to go with the eight that she won last year. She's won two 500s, one 250, a thousand, and a slam this year. It's not a failure by any means. She's within a stone's throw of Arena Sabalenka for number one, year end number one, which will be decided at the WTA finals in Cancun. Again, as we've seen throughout this entire summer into fall, one win or one good couple of weeks changes the way we view a player, especially on the WTA tour, it seems, Mm. and the year that they're having. That said, I'm sure Iga was eager to get the train back on the track, so to speak. I'm sure it was important for her mentally to get a win like this toward the end of the year. Eager Iga. Wow. Oh, Oh, okay. I didn't say that. You said you, you just said Iga was eager. Oh, got it. Samsonova, for her part, beat Kvitova, Ostapenko, and number five, Rybakina, to reach the final. She now has a 4-0 record against Rybakina. I think a lot of folks were seated, myself included, for that semifinal against Iga, Iga versus Coco, because Iga had handled Coco easily for the entirety of their matchup prior to Cincinnati, and then Coco wins that, and she goes on to win the U.S. Open. And so now it's like, is this a reset? We were all interested to see what this would look like. And as it turned out, it was business as usual prior to Cincinnati. (laughs) This was the reset. Back to how their matches typically go. Early in the tournament, Iga said that she felt very comfortable on the surface. Which, I feel like whenever Iga says that, it's almost a done deal. <laughs> when she's adjusted to a surface that early in a tournament and feels comfortable on it, it's it's lights out. But this was probably a good experiment for her in that she dialed it back a little bit. She played more counter-punching tennis rather than uh, like all-out aggression. She made very few unforced errors in the final. And I think it would... it. She needed to show that she had like other gears recently. Because some of her losses... Although they're, I mean, they certainly weren't like embarrassing. Losing to Coco on a roll, losing to Penko at the U.S. Open, there it did betray like a lack of uh, maybe creativity toward the end, or maybe just a lack of confidence. Sure, I, I, I really don't think it was that deep. She showed in this tournament that she still got the goods. Mm-hmm. It's just that she wasn't playing up to her standard during those times. Sure, and so all this hullabaloo. All this discourse about what's wrong with Iga, blah, blah, blah. All these fans who have to defend her to the moon and back and be all nasty about it online. It was just (laughs) all overdone. Like, give the woman a break. She had a rough spell. She's come back. She's she's done amazing, sweetie. Like, Mm. is this not what we should expect from a player of this caliber? Yeah, most definitely. Now she has two seasons in a row where she's won five or more titles. I gotta say, I have never been more dialed out of tennis Twitter discourse. I don't know what the dolls are arguing about. I log on there and I log right back off. Meanwhile, oh, you have the, nothing to say. Nothing about that? to say to that. Okay, totally uninterested in it. <laughs> you know what? I I'm just gonna be shameless. I really wanted to get to five thousand followers before this site went to absolute shit. There's and, still time. Well, is well, there not personally, but on the the company <laughs> account? From yes, exactly. The body serve 
Twitter account, formerly known as... No, the BodyServe X account, formerly yeah, known I, as Twitter. Yeah, I refuse. We're 24. 24 away. We're 24 away. And this site is increasingly unusable and toxic, so we just... We need it fast. I don't know why that's important to me. It's been <laughs> on your bucket list. <laughs> it's, it's not even, like, a super ambitious goal. I just kind of want it. Huh. Well, Yannick Sinner, he won Beijing on the men's side. And this is kind of a big deal for him. Mm-hmm. He beats Carlos Alcaraz in the semifinal before beating Daniil Medvedev in the final against whom he was previously 0-6. Yes. I think that's why it feels like such a big step. He's won at this level before. This is a 500 tournament, but it felt more important to that. It felt like a big mental hurdle had been leapt here. In the absence of Djokovic, he beats the two best hardcourt players on tour back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Medvedev in the final, two identical sets, 7-6 uh, and 7-2 in the tiebreakers. He seemed to, I don't know if this is true, but could have been inspired by Djokovic's approach to Medvedev in the U.S. Open final, exploiting that very deep return position. Uh, but not only the return position, just the, the positioning in general, <laughs> right? Sinner stayed closer to the baseline came to the net 33 times, won 23 of those, and just in general dictating more throughout the baseline rallies. He can't, he's not going to out-rally Medvedev by playing like this rope-a-dope tennis. It's not, you're not going to do that playing Daniel's style. So I think like these small tactical adjustments might have surprised Medvedev a little bit. Neither of them broke serve. Everything was accomplished in the tie breaks. But, I mean, beating him at all is a huge step forward. Sinner makes his top five debut in the ATP rankings at number four. He becomes the second Italian ever to crack the top five, joining Adriano Panatta, who reached a career-high number four in August 1976. Mm -hmm. Panatta, who was Borg's bugaboo at Roland Garros. I had to do some fact-checking to see if, wait... Bertini hasn't done it yet? I was like, well, yeah, that kind of checks out. <laughs> I feel like he was pretty close, though, to the top five. Uh, couldn't come much closer, in fact. Number six. <laughs> Good to know. Yannick becomes the fourth player to qualify for the ATP World Tour Finals, behind Novak, Carlos, and Daniel. The qualification scenarios for the men are less close. Than it was for the women. The women have been decided. But I looked at the men's situation right now, and it's it's mostly curtains. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the top ten has not been doing well in Shanghai. These guys are not doing themselves any favors here. Taylor Fritz out here losing to Pequeño. Really? Of all people. Diego Schwartzman. <laughs> Diego Schwartzman. Medvedev already out to Sebastian Corda, which is his first win over a top five player. Holger out to Brandon Nakashima. Zverev loses to Safiulin. 6-3-6-1. Not great. I mean, technically, I guess, down to Serundolo or Shelton at 18-19 have a chance if they win Shanghai. But it's realistically Kasparud and Tommy Paul at 10-11 who stand the only real chances of getting into the top eight. Okay. 
I'm not good at the whole qualification scenario thing, nor has it been a huge interest of mine over the years because I've seen so many people like call it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be part of that. You know, math is not my strong suit. Let's be honest. I'm just saying it's mm-hmm. not a tight jockey situation. Right. Like a, a horse race where they're all jockeying for positions. The Black Stallion, which is the most famous horse? Secretariat. Secretariat. Those <laughs> those guys are all up there. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the player who's currently at number six in the race, Tsitsipas, he also lost our leader, Umber. Felix lost to Fuchovic. Felix seemed to have a lot of mouth at the Labor Cup. Mm. Well, we talked but, about that on the last episode. Yes, but he is still not winning on the tour. Yeah, outside of Labor Cup, mm-hmm. and that's the last. I, that's the last dig I'll get in against Felix because you know I love him, but he, I just needed him to to take a few licks. Six of the top ten were already out of the Shanghai draw by round three. I mean, it's also the time of year where everybody's tired. Like, how, oh, yeah. Who can be motivated to still be going at this point? I'd be checked out. And worse yet, Paris? Do you remember the years where, I guess from 2015 onward, where Serena would qualify and just not play in the fall? Oh, yeah. That would be me my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> if I were good enough, I'd be on vacation, get a nice two months in, and then get back to training. Mm-hmm. Uh, the week of the 25th of September, which was the last time we released an episode... We didn't know the the results of these tournaments that were ongoing at the time. Veronica Kudermatova, talk about like a a total turnaround for the end of her season. She wins the Tokyo title with, I mean, what a run. Beating Iga in the quarters, Pavlyuchenkova, and then Jesse Pagula in the final for only her second career title. She has recently, very recently been a top 10 player. She had a pretty good spring Summies at both Rome and Madrid back-to-back. She was the runner-up at Sertogenbosch. And then just a, a crash and burn of a summer. She hadn't won back-to-back matches since uh, Berlin. Unstruber was one of the other winners. She'd been playing pretty much every week after the U.S. Open, trying to ensure qualification for Cancun. She's done that as the eighth seed. And... How she got there, in part, was by winning the 250 title in Ningbo, China, beating first-time finalist Dinah Schneider. Let's talk about this WTA Finals thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You tweeted something from the BodyServe account while I was at work, and then, of course, started to get notifications. And it's like 12.30 p.m. on a Sunday or something like that. And I'm like, aren't you... This is not typical for you to be doing this type of stuff at this time. I was like, what did he tweet? What has happened? And I go, look. Mm. And it's the official account for the WTA Finals Cancun showing a picture of the would-be site for the event. And it says, and just like a magician, we're making this stadium appear in less than 30 days. And listeners, there is... No, st- there's no site. There's nothing. There's a, there's a dirt patch in the shape of a tennis court in what looks like a golf course surrounding it. And, and the way that they said it was like, are we supposed to be happy about that? Or are we supposed to be impressed? Why? Firstly, why are you obligated to make it in less than 30 days? Well, we know why. But again, why? There's so much about the decision that came as a surprise, seemingly to... 
even like deep insiders in tennis. Because remember, the guy from the Czech Republic, he laid out their entire bid. And it seemed like they had stadium upon stadium upon stadium, <laughs> option upon option upon option, money upon money right. upon money. And instead we go to Cancun and weeks after we're still seeing this tweet whereby it's a dirt patch. There is no site. Right. You need just one, one court. You need one court with some seats. It's not there. We don't have a court or seats. Now, love more tournaments in Latin America, first of all. And Mexico has been doing an amazing job at hosting WTA tournaments over the last few years. So that's not the issue here. The issue is the Czech, the Prague bid was able to guarantee one year. If if the WTA only was looking at a placeholder site for a year because they're going to Saudi Arabia under the cover of night next year. <laughs> Allegedly. Then, <laughs> Presumably. Then, then they could have gone to Prague, right? So I wish... There was any, just any ounce of reporting about how and why this decision to go to Cancun was made. It's hard for me to believe that there was no rationality behind it. I just want to know what it is. In the absence of that, we have to, I mean, we don't have to, but it seems most plausible what the Czech dude told us. That it's just a holdover. Right, but why couldn't Prague be the holdover? Because... They offered it for one year. I, I don't know. Maybe it would seem even more incredulous that they would then leave there to go to Saudi Arabia. Because presumably you'll have <laughs> a site with mm. good support. You have how many top Czech players in the top 15. Czech tennis is booming. To do it for one year there and then leave, it makes the decision look even that more mercenary, doesn't it? Mm. Okay, that's one one explanation. It's just now the third year in a row where we're scrambling. And the first year, I'll even give you something of a pass because there was the whole Peng Shui accusation, the refusal to engage with China. And so they scrambled and put together Guadalajara. And that that site and those organizers did an incredible job with short notice. But last year, we had a late announcement of Dallas-Fort Worth, which the WTA allegedly paid for out of their cash reserves. And now we have the late announcement and no court in Cancun. Now I understand that tournaments do put up courts in just a few weeks. Like that happens, even at established tournaments. My question is, why are you drawing attention to this? It looks amateurish and it, it looks like it's highlighting a situation that already did not need to exist. Well, maybe it's for the wow moment, the the before after reveal. Wow! Wait, 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 wait for it. When it comes, right. it could be a re, could be a resort. It's going to be like a whole resort. Court, Wimbledon could have been built on this golf course by the time it happens. So let let's reserve a little bit of judgment. <laughs> In the meantime, the set the field is set for the finals, and I'm kind of glad that it's done with, like three weeks out. That it's not like a down-to-the-wire kind of thing. In in descending order from 1 to 8, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Goff, Rybakina, Pagula, Vondrosheva, Muhova, and Jibur. This is a good field. This is a field that's representative of the year in tennis. I feel. It, it's a very good field. We've got uh, all of the winners and runners-up of the Grand Slam tournaments of the year. And I like the lack of qualification drama, as you said. Who didn't make it? Maria Sakkari. 
in the absence of big titles, big moments, and just mostly consistent year, but then also some big losses in big tournaments early, I don't feel... How am I going to say this without sounding like a hater or just being mean? I don't think she necessarily earned a spot in the top eight. I don't think she's one of the best eight players on tour this year. Well, clearly not because she just didn't make it. Yeah, I mean, she, she, was, she was ninth. I feel that was a really uh, ungenerous way to look at it. I was just going to say she got herself very close to qualifying by winning Guadalajara recently. Good for her. Sure. <laughs> But we're talking about this in the context of, is this field of eight representative of the best players on the year? And while I do have, as you all know, fond feelings toward Maria, I'm a fan. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't think that, you know, her being in the top eight at the expense of one of the other players would have me feeling better about the field. Put it that way. Okay. Then there's Madison Keys at 10. I'm... I mean, she made the semis of the U.S. Open. I struggle to remember Madison's performances. Yes. <laughs> but it, she's there. But she's like always putting herself in the top 20, even if you don't really remember what she did that year. Petra Kvitova, Miami, Miami Open champion at number 11. Ostapenko, who has been very consistent at the quarterfinal level on, on the regular tour. Mm-hmm. Krejcikova, who beat... Iga at Dubai, very memorably. The other thing to consider when talking about this field and if it's a deserving field and when we get to the actual tournament, what if the eighth seed wins it? What if the seventh seed wins it? I feel like there have been years where we've had quote-unquote surprise winners. When if you have a finals field of eight that's supposed to be representative of the best players of the year, how can one of those players be a surprise winner? Do you know what I mean? And I feel like with this field, there will be no surprise winner. There can there can be no surprise winner. Yes, I agree. Totally. Now, the other wrinkle of this tournament being in Cancun is that the transit from Cancun to Seville, which is where the Billie Jean King... I cannot say that. The BJK Cup. Yes. It's great. Billy's Cup. Billy's... The former Fed Cup uh, in Seville is that the travel is going to be very difficult. And Iga, Coco, and Jessica Bagula have already announced they will not be playing BJK Cup. So you have potentially screwed that event. For the second year in a row, scheduling is a big problem. Yes, and also Coco has some injury concerns right now. She Mm -hmm. took a medical timeout in that semifinal against Iga, subsequently withdrew from the tournament the following week. And eh, who knows? She really doesn't need to be playing BJK Cup in light of all of that. Now, the United States has an amazing team, even without Peggy and Goff. Poland is much more impacted by Iga's absence. On to some mess. Don't we love some mess? Mm -hmm. I have to, I mean, I feel bad, but this did actually kind of amuse me. Not not the news, but the reaction. Zhang Qinwen and Vim Facet have parted ways Mm -hmm. Uh, he fled he fled the scene yeah from what it sounds like he went back to naomi who he was working with before naomi's uh, maternity leave and now she's back she's practicing and he's back with her Mm -hmm. and so zhang was asked about this in chinese press so it was translated and she's quoted as saying 
He broke the contract, which for me is very immoral, but that is his choice. I can do nothing but respect that. I have to say this brought harm to me and my family, so let's not talk about him right now. The construction of this is just what made me laugh. The immoral part? It's, this is immoral, but I can't do anything. I have to respect that. But it brought harm to me and my family. It goes on to say, I cried after hearing the decision. I understand that Osaka can provide a better offer and he has a family to support. I understand his decision, but it doesn't mean I will forgive him. <laughs> and that's that. On that. I just love that this is really in your face. This is exactly how she feels about the situation. We get so many anodyne, boring really, sound bites about... Could you not have used a different word? What? You're flexing on people now. <laughs> anodyne. Okay, well... well all right. I'll I'll use the most basic word possible. How about that to to appease you? The canned responses when when coaches and players break up are so boring. It's not like Vim was out here coaching a veteran like Alize Corne. He wasn't out here coaching a prospect who is maybe a few years away from realizing huge results like say one of the Lindas. You know, <laughs> This was Zhang Qinwen. This is somebody who is a top 25 player who's there, who is ready to strike. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I get it. Oh, totally. Totally, totally get I get it. it. I also get why he would go back to Naomi. Yeah. Yeah. For a number of reasons. Yeah. After the US Open and Coco Goff's win, we had a lot of bloviating. Remember that word? Mm-hmm. That callback? Mm-hmm. It's this thing that happens where when somebody achieves something in tennis... It can be on a grand scale, like one of the big three winning a tournament or doing something to then put them in a new position to be the GOAT. You know, you can make this argument and you can run away with it. Or in the case of Coco at this tournament, Mark Pecci goes on, what was it, Tennis Channel or something like that? He goes on some platform and and claims that Coco Goff is the best WTA athlete since Steffi Graf. You really f- flamed him for this one on Twitter, and it it sort of tickled me that you <laughs> you got so mad about it because it is so clearly like bullshitty. You know, it's it's a superlative just to use the most superlative comparison possible, and I'm not even prepared to argue the merits of it just because it's not a serious statement in my opinion. Well, because it completely bypasses the entire Williams generation and all their contributions. And it's not even one of those things where somebody makes a statement about a tennis player and it's like, well, what about Serena? What about Venus? It just seems so patently stupid mm-hmm. to me. Because it, it is that, of course. But also, what is the greatest athlete in your mind? Like, what are the, what are the, the factors that you're using to make that, that pronouncement? Because you want to say movement, but let's break down the movement. The lateral movement, beautiful for Coco at the U.S. Open. We talked on the show. I talked on the show how she would not take her foot off of Arena's neck the entire second and third mm-hmm. set. Mm-hmm. Just got everything back. And that was jarring for a lot of people to watch in a good way. It was like, right. wow, it was awe-inspiring. Super frustrating for for Arena, I'm sure. But let's let's talk about the, the movement to the net. Um, I don't see Coco out here being athletic at net the way Venus was at that age and for her entire 20s. 
you know, hitting swinging volleys, moving and contorting her body in ways that had never been seen on a tennis court ever. Is athleticism raw foot speed? Because obviously Coco and Steffi both have that. If so, then but, say fastest. Sure, but also how? Again, how, how do you, do you even measure know that? that? How do you measure? Have that? you asked them all to do a, a sixty meter? What is it? Sixty yard? Sixty meter? Whatever the footballers do, the sixty yard. No, dash. it's sixty meter. Uh, the distance combine thing? in in track and field. It is indoor. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's usually like a a drill oh, in football oh, I see. in the combine. Oh yeah, right. I'm definitely not talking about football. <laughs> Either either kind of football. Or is, that the, or is it 40 meters I in football? One of them. Anyway, it's me, it's used to measure oh, right. like quick bursts. Sure. But is it uh, is it foot speed and strength and explosiveness? and? Is it endurance to be able to still keep that up deep in a third set? Is it, is it like raw muscle strength? Like what does athleticism mean? It's just not really all that useful. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a bigger deal than it is, but I feel like it's typically like black athletes who are like wow the athleticism it's unmatched (laughs) don't laugh i'm not trying to be shady but it's like how many times did we call or not we but the world say Mofis was the greatest athlete men's tennis has ever seen but it was also a way to say well his achievements haven't come anywhere close to what they should have been because look at him so i just i generally just don't like that okay Martina Navratilova has devolved even further oh, you, you into wanna... whatever it is that she's doing online. You want to talk about that? Briefly. Only as a segue into asking the listeners to go check out what Jonathan Van Ness has been saying about this war against trans people and trans people in sport recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I find it very instructive and illuminating. Yeah. The thing with Martina, and I can I really can't stomach looking at the timeline for a number of reasons, and it's not just the trans, uh, it's not a debate, The this issue, that it looks like the ravings of a person who is not making sense. We talk, we've been talking about this for years now, and when we started talking about it, we mentioned how her words have been co-opted and used by Republican politicians to legislate against LGBT youth in particular, trans youth in particular, that is now uh, plain as day and something that's talked about mainstream. You know, it's part of the mm. discourse. Yeah. And she is asked about it on Twitter all the time and essentially doesn't give a flying fuck about it. Yeah. And now the heart of the matter, what it really boils down to is that this is just an anti-trans stance, period, which is what it really was from the start, right? There it is, right? Back about, what was it, four or five years ago when she wrote that incredibly callous op-ed and then was roasted for it, our culture was in a place where she had to apologize. And she said, I, I support trans people on every issue but sports. That's what you had to say mm-hmm. then. We have devolved so far that you don't have to say that. You can say... Well, uh, also, she has devolved so far, where now she says explicitly that she doesn't think trans people should be in the same spaces as cis women. Period. Yeah, so I think what needs to be understood is that even if you don't believe that trans women should be in women's sports, and that seems to be the majority position, you do have to know that this is not only about sports. You can just take take a gander. And I guess luckily for Martina, our culture has devolved so far that attacking trans people on any issue is pretty much completely acceptable. 
I mean, conservative parties across the world went from being in, in at least in name and in word, supportive of the T and the Q parts of the community to being abusive. And all this is playing out on Twitter in broad daylight. And still, Chrissy Everett is, is jumping into these Twitter streets and quote tweeting and defending her in lockstep. I do like that Martina continuously uh, criticizes Billie Jean for not coming on board because it only highlights the gulf between them. And I think at some point, hopefully, when we, we're in a better place as far as LGBTQ rights, we'll paint Billie Jean in the best light possible. She's out here taking shots at Billie now. Oh, yeah. And I say, continue to do it because look how it makes you look. Mm-hmm. Say, replying to somebody saying to the effect of, well, I, I don't think this, they don't think that, but Billie thinks this, go figure. Go figure. And then said, Steffi has never been a part of this. He's like, <laughs> that is for damn sure. Because Steffi, by design, doesn't want to be a part of anything. <laughs> no. She'll come out here to do a little pickleball. Yeah. Or, you know, Naomi can pop by for a little impromptu pregnancy hit. But that's it. <laughs> She's like, remember when I told you I was apolitical and didn't, didn't give a shit about all that? Uh, well, I'm on my balcony in Las Vegas right now. With Andre, um, looking the better for it. She's like, I dipped my toe into those political waters when Monica was coming back, and that didn't go well for me, and I retired. (laughs) I'm not giving you my my opinion on anything. (laughs) In better news, Rafael Nadal has returned to the tennis court. Mm -hmm. And we, well, more so you. More so me. um, We're very pessimistic about the prospect of his return next year. Because of interviews that he gave, uh, what a few other people had said. But like clockwork, Rafa is here to try to prove us wrong. Mm -hmm. We had a listener reach out to say they were very disappointed with that segment and how pessimistic and negative we felt his chances were. Mm -hmm. And And uh, that's fair. Yeah, my reaction was, you know, I wish that weren't my reaction, but it was. And I wish for Rafa to come back and slay. Right. I mean, that was a fair criticism, but it was our just our feeling. You know, it wasn't a, anything we were presenting as factual. Yeah. Have we learned, learned? Uh, depending on which country you're in? Nothing. Mm-hmm. From the Denis Shapovalov situation at Davis Cup a few years ago? <laughs> well, obviously no, but there's been yet another incident to confirm that lack of learning. Mark Pullman's in the final round of qualifying at Shanghai uh, loses a match point, one of his own match points, and just smashes the ball straight toward the umpire's face. Hits him in the face. Gets defaulted, obviously. He's up a set. He has two match points in the second set. After he loses a second match point on a missed volley into the net, the ball... Starts bouncing back toward him, and he just takes a swipe. And the swipe goes straight into the umpire's face. Right. And this is why we're never, ever going to debate, are these rules too harsh when a player hits somebody on court by accident? No. No, because that's why they exist. They're supposed to be a deterrent. Clearly, they're not. How many times does this have to happen? I mean, the answer is, is until somebody actually serves a meaningful suspension for this sort of thing, it will continue to happen. And you can't even say, oh, well, maybe if somebody gets seriously hurt, because 
the umpire in that Davis Cup match was seriously hurt. Right. But then we get to this point where people start to make value judgments on the character of the person doing it. And that's what should determine whether they get punished or not. Mm-hmm. Rennie Stubbs is out here saying, Mark Pullman's is one of the nicest guys. I guarantee you he didn't mean it. <laughs> Matters not. Right. But that's not how the rules are supposed that's, to work. And, and so if it's Dan Evans... And that's from a former player? It, yeah. If it's Dan Evans, then we should throw the book at him. If it's Benoit Pair, Somebody we if don't it's, like. You know? like that. That's just not how these things should work. These fines and punishments should serve as deterrence to the point where this does not happen anymore. Right. It's crazy that this is still happening. And if, okay, you want to, I don't know if he's a nice guy. I don't know him. I don't call him at home. But read his apology. It's fucking garbage. Pardon my language. Quote, an update from me. The umpire, Ben, has accepted my apology for my actions. He knows it was unintentional. And I shanked the ball on the frame in frustration in the heat of the moment. We both move on. It was a high-pressure situation, and I should have reacted better. Mm-hmm. Different scenario. Look at where the emphasis is here. Me, 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 me. No, be, I should have acted, reacted better was the last thing he said. First, he said, Ben has accepted my apology for my actions. Uh, the parenthetical is, as he should. He knows it was unintentional. They really think we're stupid, don't they? Mm-hmm. Did he think the fans were like, oh, Mark went out today and he was like, I'm going to injure the umpire today. Premeditated murder. Babe, that is not the point. You are not being like, charged with premeditated my murder. My God, we are not as stupid as you think we are. Right, but because this is a dangerous situation, the intention doesn't matter here. You need to be sanctioned. You need to be punished. Like a default is the bare minimum of what is supposed to happen. In my view, tennis is a sport that really babies its athletes on a lot of things. This is one of them. The other thing is anti-doping. They certainly take it easy on the athletes compared to a lot of other major sports. But as you, I mean, you watch baseball, basketball, they're handing out ejections. That's what they call them. Ejection. Yeah. Yeah. Technicals in basketball just for arguing with umpires. You look at and referees the wrong way. <laughs> Sometimes words don't even have to be spoken. Right. Like, do you, tennis players don't know how, how nice they have it. You can actually launch a ball at somebody's eyeball and send them to get surgery. And then people are checking to see if you're okay. Come on, be serious. Sweet child, such a little boy, didn't mean to do it. (sighs) Tennis is now being covered on a regular basis over at The Athletic. I think that's a, a new thing that has happened And one of the stories that's emerged from Matt Futterman is about an alleged USTA sexual abuse cover-up. One of the things that sticks out to me from reading this article is, how is this lawyer still employed by the USTA? (laughs) Okay, let's start at the beginning. Wow, you're going straight for the lawyer. Uh, Matt Futterman, he's been covering this issue for the New York Times and now The Athletic. First of all, I just just wanted to call out his excellent reporting on this stuff. Not many reporters are even talking about this in tennis, so glad to see it. The legal team for the USTA has been the subject of public criticism multiple times recently, which is not something you should ever be hearing. Earlier in September, the Times published a story about Kylie McKenzie, who's a former junior player who is currently suing the USTA for failing to protect her from a coach who sexually assaulted her at the National Training Center in Orlando when she was 19 years old. 
During the deposition, a USTA lawyer asked her about her sexual history, whether she had taken medications for anxiety and depression, and what those medications are. The lawyer even asked her mother whether she knew about her daughter taking birth control and Plan B. Now, it is valid to point out that these are often common questions. These are common questions in sexual assault cases. We can also point out that those are not okay, and those can be intimidating and belittling to survivors of sexual assault. Just because it's common doesn't mean it's cool. It then turns the lens onto their behaviors, their practices, as somehow reason for what happened to them. Mm -hmm. Mackenzie's lawyer has accused the USTA of, quote, belittling, embarrassing, and intimidating survivors. During this, uh, this deposition, Pam Shriver also testified that the USTA's lawyer, Stacey Ellen Michelle, told her, quote, to be careful, unquote, when speaking out. Apparently what happened is that the lawyer, Michelle, approached Pam at a fundraising dinner to talk about Shriver's participation in the McKenzie case. And Pam admitted, like, be careful was open for interpretation, but the way that she interpreted it was, don't say too much. Be careful about what you say about sexual assault. In the article, it's depicted as the lawyer accompanying Pam to her car in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. So this was clearly off the record. Mm -hmm. Now, another case is happening at the same time, or another complaint, I should say. Stevie Gould, who was a former junior player who sued the USTA a few years ago and won, again, over its failure to protect players from a coach. This coach was a man by the name of Normandy Burgos, who is a convicted pedophile, currently serving a 255-year prison sentence for child molestation, among other things. And this is only after years of neglect from multiple should-be gatekeepers allowed this pedophile to thrive in tennis. Mm -hmm. And you can make the case that the USTA was one of those people or entities that was negligent. And allowed this to happen. Right. As you said, Burgos had actually been taken to trial in 2010 after he'd been accused of sexually assaulting high school tennis players under his watch. Dating Uh, back to like 2006. Right. A mistrial was declared. The USTA did nothing at the time. Then they only suspended him in 2014 after he was investigated again by police for sexually assaulting children. So Stevie Gould, who was, who was the complainant who had received a reportedly very generous settlement by the USTA, has filed a new complaint with this organization called Safe Sport, this time directly against Stacey Ellen Michelle, the lawyer for the USTA, the one who told Pam to be careful. Gould says in the court filings that Michelle is, quote, morally unfit to continue in her current role. And the reason he filed this complaint now is that new information came to light. He was made aware of an email where Stacey Ellen Michelle uh, basically demanded that any information from the police investigation into Burgos and his suspension from the USTA remain confidential. The kicker here is that Burgos abused Gould after that email was sent. Mm-hmm. So what the lawyer in the USTA... And I say, and the USTA, because the lawyer is representing the USTA. 
what they are making clear is that the privacy, not of the convicted abuser, but of the USTA, is more important than preventing this from happening again. Whatever smoke that could come their way for their involvement in this initial conviction in 2014, they want none of it. No. They want everything to be under wraps, no blowback coming their way. In the meantime, this man can continue to do what he had been doing. And on that note, in New York, in 2020, the New York Times reported that, quote, there is no public record of the USTA having taken any action against Burgos. Now, we know that he had been suspended in 2014, but was that made public? Was there a record of that? He was not registered as a sex offender with the USTA. So meanwhile, players like Gould hired him as a private coach, having no idea of the accusations against him until the man went to prison. Because if you claim you're an accredited tennis coach, there's a public record of that. If these accusations, if these would-be sanctions from the USTA are made public, then would-be clients have access to that. If you're going to go train with somebody privately, in this day and age, you Google them, right? Yeah. Especially if you're a parent. You go, so, well, who am I sending my child to to go spend all these hours in their private condominium tennis complex? And that's what Stevie Gold is alleging here, that the instructions from Stacey Ellen Michelle to keep this quiet did not allow me and my family to be able to know about this mm. and to protect mm. ourselves and stop this from happening. Right. And the USDA isn't arguing the facts of the case here. They're not saying, oh, that that never happened. She never said that because it was in an email. They're saying they were instructed by authorities to do that, to both uh, prevent the re-victimization of the survivors of that current investigation and to avoid interfering with the investigation. And again, I don't doubt that they were told to do that. And I'm not sure if anything will come of the complaint because I don't know that Stacey Ellen Michelle violated the law in any way. However, that doesn't mean this isn't a really damaging practice that allows, like, abusers to keep on abusing. Mm. You know, it allows us... To, I mean, we grew up during the Catholic Church abuse scandals where abusers were just sent somewhere else and nobody was ever told about it. Any occupation where adults have access to children and are given a lot of power to influence that child's life and career and potential future earnings, abuse happens. Right. And to say that this was the practice back then doesn't mean that it's the best practice now. Right. Nor was it the best practice back then, but... Back then, what, a few years ago? Things change. Right? Mm -hmm. Just this week, we saw, what, Hockey Canada release all these new guidelines about how kids under the age of 18 should operate within the locker room in terms of mm. wearing undergarments from the shower, in the locker room, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And the idea mm -hmm. is it's to protect people and kids who aren't necessarily comfortable in those scenarios. There's a lot of body shaming that happens. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fraught place for a lot of people and prohibits continued participation in sport. The right. locker room for adolescents is a fraught place. <laughs> Yes. Right? And so that's a new rule. That's people looking back and taking into consideration the abuse scandal that happened within Hockey Canada. Mm -hmm. These huge sex abuse scandals 
Mm-hmm. And this is something that's being done as a way forward. Yeah, as a lookout for the weirdos who argue against that, a rule right? like that, because it's just weird. Because why, why is this your hill on which you've chosen to die? But it's been clear over the past few years that more and more adults who were once children, who were abused, are coming out, talking about what happened, winning lawsuits against major tennis organizations. And I think it will continue to happen as long as people like Pam and Stevie Gould and Kylie McKenzie are giving voice to what, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have experienced. Mm -hmm. And so part of my point in saying that how best practices then are not necessarily the case now, we're talking about this lawyer's involvement in a case back to at least 2014. Mm -hmm. And none of it has looked good for the USDA. No. Not one bit of it. So how is it now that in 2023, in this day and age, that this person is still involved? It makes zero sense to me. And the USDA has a lot to answer for here because this is money that's generated from hundreds of thousands of honey deuces, from all (laughs) these Mm -hmm. absurd price gouging measures. Yeah. So you're using some of that money to pay out lawsuit settlements. They paid out Jeannie Bouchard. They're paying out all these sex abuse allegations. Sure. But it's what they're paying out is peanuts compared to their actual revenues the point is that it's not very good for credibility Mm -mm, i don't know if it's peanuts but yes i think both things are are true there's just a lot of stuff that happens under the cover of night that never comes into daylight in tennis Mm -hmm. that i think we would all be flabbergasted to know the even the half of it Mm -hmm. i think uh the leaders of a lot of sporting organizations are probably panicking because they realize The USDA is a massive organization with tons of satellite groups underneath it, all these different regions, hundreds and thousands of coaches who they don't have control over, right? They can't see into their their daily doings. But when you've allowed abuse to take place and then you've prevented that information from coming to light, you are now responsible. But I think a lot of sporting federations are currently trying to grapple with like, well, you know, how much can we be held responsible for this stuff that we didn't know was happening? Or we could reasonably say we didn't know was happening. And uh, it's becoming clearer and clearer that they will be held accountable. A couple of things before we wrap up this episode. We thought legitimately at one point last week that Lucy Shavasheva was coming back to tennis at 36 years old. She was entered... <laughs> People were like, another one? <laughs> right. So many tweets were like, please no, this is this is a step too far. <laughs> Y'all need to stay retired, stop this madness. I'm not one of those people. You know, I say do what do what you need to mm-hmm. do to make your heart sing. Right. And so this was an ITF event in France. She plays the first round, wins it in three sets, and then she tells us that she's not coming back to tennis. She's only there because she's chaperoning essentially her two nieces. From her, the two daughters of her eldest sister. One of them is 17 and she was entered into doubles to play alongside that 17-year-old niece. Right. She wanted to play doubles with her and she also wanted to get into shape for an upcoming exhibition match. The ITF said, hello, hi, um, remember <laughs> us? Lucy claims she didn't know and nobody notified her. That annoyed me. That she had to tell the ITF that she was planning to play this. And again, I'm like, well, how do you not know that? I mean, if I know that, 
and I would never play a tennis tournament. How do you not know that? I was a bit unclear about this, because does that mean that she entered this without having submitted to doping control? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what what that means. means. Yeah. Like, this is an ITF tournament. That is the professional tennis tour. Even if it's a lower level, that's professional tennis. You have to be an anti-doping. Right. Like, doesn't everybody know that's that? That's what I assume, yeah. but it wasn't stated explicitly. So I it was, was just not, reading no. between the lines there. Yeah. But yes, ma'am, you should know this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that was that. It's it's over. Watch out for her at the, the exhibition coming mm-hmm. up. We made the very wise decision this past <laughs> week to forego our scissor tickets for Toronto on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And instead... Last minute, went to see Stevie Nicks in Buffalo. Yeah. Okay. Let me, first of all, let me tell you about SZA because I've been playing Control nearly every day for like the past five, five, six years. One of my favorite albums ever. Her most recent album, SOS, I also love. And I was really excited to see her. However, I have seen some videos of SZA in concert where the voice is just not, not that great on that day. Or the energy doesn't feel like it's there. So anyway, I was getting... Like I was getting bad feelings. You had these tickets about for the show. months, many, many months, because this is actually her second stop in Toronto. She was already here in the spring, but I was sort of getting a bad feeling. I thought she was either like not going to be at her best or just not going to show up. And she did show up, but she canceled the concert about one hour before it started. How we got to this decision? I've been going down a Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks rabbit hole for a few months now right which i've been down for yes. generations at yes. this point and just on a whim i looked up while you were sleeping one night stevie nicks in concert and i was like what in a couple weeks she's going to be playing in buffalo i could make this a whole thing i could be, make a whole surprise gesture thing tell you like you got to be done with work at three thirty. grab the passports you don't even know you're crossing the border a lie to the border guard, and then you just show up. Yeah, but you should never do that. You should <laughs> never touch someone else's passport or take them across a border without their knowledge. Just uh, that's to the listeners, you know. I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> and I make all these plans in my head. I even tell you about the date to like reserve it. And then right as I'm about to follow this, but it's like, well, I'm, oh, but that scissor concert is coming up. When is it? And I go, look, it's the same night. So I was like, well, fuck my drag. Well, it's on the Google Calendar, by the way. And then you said the next day, well, I'm not even sure I wouldn't want to do Stevie more. Right. I mean, she's in her 70s, right? Like, how many more times, reasonably, will I get a chance to see her? And I missed a chance to see Fleetwood in Buffalo in 2019. Oh, that's, So I didn't want to miss that again. Yeah. So you decided a couple of days later, yeah, let's do it. Sell this as a ticket. Let's go to buffalo and it was amazing this woman is 75 years old she's not doing her twirls anymore she's doing some abridged abbreviated movements Mm -hmm. you know she's 75 years old but when she steps up to that microphone the voice is still like undeniable a lot of power in her voice i was really surprised and being a novice i was surprised by how much of a rocker she is because I guess I'm more familiar with the softer yeah, Fleetwood like songs. Yeah, like the ethereal and, sort of Rihanna. Yes. And, yeah. But she said recently that Christine was the pop star. And, and Stevie's songs veered more toward rock. And it definitely was like a harder rock feel. 
her in her solo stuff too. Yeah, that Goldust Woman performance. Oh, that was really cool. <laughs> that went on for like ten minutes. Yeah. If you ever did at one a chance... point, I turned to you and I said, "Is this the same song, or is it a different one?" <laughs> yeah, kind of. Listen to Goldust Woman with really good headphones because the instrumentation on like the Rumors version is very, very cool. It's really intricate. And of course, I am a ride or die for Silver Springs. Yes, but specifically, as I'm sure everybody is at this point, the dance live version. Mm-hmm. As you know, I mean, if you're a boomer, you know, like th- this is your thing. You know, you grew up with this, um, the drama, and and Stevie and Lindsay are like your your thing, right? Yes. But I, I sort of experienced this as like a 13-year-old when the mm. dance came out. And for some reason, it became very important to me. The whole Fleetwood legend. Homosexual. <laughs> All that to say, I can observe it with some distance because it's not my generation, but I just always love mm. Stevie and Fleetwood Mac. She closed the show with landslide with a montage of christine in the background and Mm -hmm. she tells us afterward that however many times she's performed this show with that montage and closed the show with landslide she's never turned around to look at the montage because it's still so painful Mm. it's still very fresh christine only died last year the catalog is just incredible from Mm -hmm. the fleetwood stuff to the solo stuff (laughs) i mean a true icon in music history i'm very happy i got to see her perform yeah i would have preferred to not be in buffalo but that's oh that's that bad. time when she she has a lot of ramblings in between songs right which I, I love when artists tell stories at concerts right um but in buffalo new york she starts to talk about ukraine and about how <laughs> <laughs> and how she's really upset that the U.S. may uh, s- stop sending so much money and aid to Ukraine that she's in, really in support of our government's, you know, supporting the Ukraine war effort. And what was this? What was the song again? Soldiers, Soldiers something. So I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge fan of the song. Anyway, the Soldiers Angel, the women behind us, they were not fans of that. And it's like that shattering realization when you realize your fave is not a Republican. Right. One of them was even like, yeah, with, with our tax dollars. I'll, I'll, I'll sit for this one. Yeah. Why don't you get the fuck out? How about that? Why don't you go fuck yourself? How about oh, that? Oh, wow. Okay. It, it was just amusing to me. Because, like, you've spent a lot of money to see this woman. And, first of all, you know the big hits. And you've been seated for all the others. Like, songs. are you surprised? Even like, next you would claim... Be... You claim, say, you're huge fans of this person. And you don't know that she's at the very least left-leaning? Like, this is crazy. This is crazy stuff. Very silly. The reaction to that performance was very muted (laughs) from that crowd. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, you're in Buffalo, so most of the people are drunk before they got there. It's, I think it's like the tailgating culture of, Mm. you know, the Sabres and, and the Bills. Say what you want about Buffalo and watching a live event there. Their chicken finger sauce game is on point. You just described the United States of America. No, no, and that was particularly exceptional. Really? Yeah, they had pump stations. That was your of ketchup, ranch, uh, buffalo sauce, and barbecue sauce. You could get all four. Mm-hmm. Crazy, all in, in one station. In Canada, we're stuck with plum sauce. Exactly. Ugh. So you should know what I'm talking yeah. about. Well, I will say the food was definitely better than Toronto Airport. We're not getting on that note. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. You can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash The Body Serve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.